Hello everyone and welcome to the third season of the History of Modern Greece, where we cover the subject of the fall of Constantinople to the modern day. I am your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George. Hi, my name is George. And our music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is Season 1, Episode 4, The Collapse of the Bronze Age. So far on our journey to discover how ancient Greece evolved into modern Greece, we have discussed the origin of the Greek people. Specifically, the hypothetical origin of the Proto-Indo-European tribes. A specific branch of this tribe broke off and migrated south into the Balkans, where they came into contact with the Minoan civilization, a naval civilization that dominated the Aegean Sea. The Proto-Greeks lived under the influence of the Minoans for centuries before a violent volcanic eruption sent tsunamis through the ocean, destroying every Minoan vessel. The giant waves destroyed the naval ports, and within days the entire Minoan navy was reduced to wreckage. When the volcanic clouds subsided and the oceans calmed down, the Bronze Age Greeks saw an empty ocean, and they took advantage of the Minoans in their weakened state and conquered their palace cities in Crete. What makes this most interesting is that ancient Greece is typically known as the age of city-states. There was no such thing as a unified Greece in ancient Greece. But during the Bronze Age, this might not have been the case. It seems that between the years 1650 and 1180 BC, things were different. The Greek civilization operated under the palace system, which is a centralized system. And this system saw ancient Greece semi-united into a homogenized culture. That is, the Mycenaean Greek culture. You know, it's unfortunate, but we know so little about the Bronze Age, especially compared to the early Iron Age. And the reason for this is very simple. We don't have any writings. I mean, we have some, but there's very little. The only reason we know about ancient Greece is because they took the time to write their ideas down. And it wasn't just enough to write it down. It had to be copied again and again. If I took my favorite novel and left it in the cave, how many years would go by before the book just turned to dust? Do you think a novel like Lord of the Rings would survive a thousand years if you just put it in a cave and left it there in the open air? Or would someone have to go in there, read that book, and like it enough to make a copy of it to share it with someone else. And then that copy would eventually have to be copied again, and again throughout time, over and over again. Like it's a miracle we have any of these writings at all. Now just to give you an example of such an occurrence, the Iliad, a book written nearly 2,800 years ago. It's a book about events that took place 3,200 years ago from now. That book. The Iliad. How old do you think our oldest copy is? Like if someone today wanted to go read the oldest manuscript, how old would that text be? Well, I can tell you. It would be a thousand years old. The oldest living copy of a 3,000-year-old book is only a 1,000 years old. But that, a 1,000 years old, that's still insane. But think about it. When this copy was made of the Iliad, the story was already 2,000 years old. However, the Bronze Age cultures did not write on paper. They wrote their messages on clay tablets. I mean, for the most part. 
And most of them wrote in languages that we do not understand, using an alphabet that we cannot translate. It is remarkably difficult to translate these old tablets. Some of them still are undecipherable, like the Minoan Linear A script. But every now and then, we get a scholar who cracks the code. And as soon as one of these ancient Bronze Age languages are deciphered, an endless catalog of old tablets are brought to life. Suddenly, these ancient archaeological sites with their strange stone tablets tell a story. And the story that they all tell is frightening. We discussed the difficulties Heinrich Schliemann and Arthur Evans had getting permits to dig. But after World War I, the Ottoman Empire ceased to exist, and the new nation of Turkey came into existence. Suddenly the archaeological sites exploded, and the new discoveries were being made weekly. And one of the common sites they uncovered were ancient Bronze Age cities. The history of humanity was being pushed back further and farther every month. The early 20th century really shaped our modern understanding of the Bronze Age. After several decades of extreme archaeology, interrupted only by World War I and the subsequent Greco-Turkish War, Dozens, if not hundreds, of new sites were uncovered. And what was amazing was seeing all the Mycenaean pottery in these Bronze Age cities. As far away as modern-day Iraq and Iran, there were ancient Greek pottery shards. A truly interconnected and international world was discovered. And it was thousands of years old. These cities were so old that Alexander the Great would have looked upon them with wonder and amazement at how old they were. And all of these cities were connected by trade. And the trade that dominated the region was bronze. Do you know what bronze is? No, I'm not referring to the third place medal in the Olympics. This is the real metal. Bronze was the first alloy produced by ancient humans that could be readily used to make tools, weapons, and jewelry. For most of human existence, we worked with stone and wooden tools. Our spears were wooden sticks, and our axes would be made of sharp stones. To cut animal hides and meat, we would use sharpened rocks, usually rocks that were cracked in half that created a very sharp edge. That was it for tens upon tens thousands of years. Humans worked with sticks and stones. No one really knows for sure how it started. But here's a story that we heard, and it makes the most sense to us. It's also really cool to visualize. And the story goes like this. While our ancient ancestors were building a campfire, and lining the side of the fire with rocks around it, one of the rocks they used had veins of copper running through it. To our ancestors, it would only appear as a sparkly rock, something pretty to look at, especially when it sparkled in the light of the fire. They must have stared at it the same way we stare at a painting, or the TV after a long day of work. That sparkle on the edge of the rock next to the fire caught their eye and as they stared at it they kept adding more and more wood to keep the fire going so they could keep watching it but as the heat increased something happened something that would change the world forever the little copper sparkle dripped down the side of the rock and pooled at the bottom of the fire it was the most amazing thing our ancient ancestors had ever seen. And they took a stick and poked at the pool of liquid metal at the bottom of the fire. And when they took the stick out, the metal cooled on the end of the stick and coated it 
with a fine copper finish. The idea of metal being melted in a campfire was nothing new. This must have happened again and again throughout time. But the fact that someone was able to harness it on the end of a stick and let it cool down is what really makes this event special. Assuming this is how it happened. Because now the stick was tougher. They could tap it on the rocks and it would make a ting sound. They could drag the stick through the dirt and it would dig up pebbles that would normally stay in the earth. This copper-coated stick was now tougher and also prettier than anything they could find in nature. It was almost godlike. Now here's the thing about copper. It's everywhere. It's one of the most common metals in nature. You couldn't go for a hike and not trip on a rock that didn't have copper in it. And unlike other minerals, copper can actually be found in its purest form. Most coppers in nature are green. That green hue on a penny that got left out in the rain. Or the green Statue of Liberty. That is an oxidized version of copper. But the pure veins of copper, they were out there too. And once mankind learned how to melt the copper, and just how useful it was for tools and weapons and jewels, people sought out these rocks, and they melted them on purpose to gather the ore. Rocks were pounded and crushed, and their ore was gathered and then heated in specific fires meant to collect the metal. This was the dawning of the Copper Age. Now, copper can be melted at a relatively low temperature. That's why it was one of the first metals to be utilized. And the discovery of copper is attributed to the 9th millennium BC. That's almost immediately after the Ice Age. And the Copper Age exploded everywhere on Earth. Even in North and South America, the natives were using copper. Although, it is thought that they may have been hammering the copper into shape while the metal was cold instead of heating it up and pouring it into a mold. And for thousands of years, humans experimented with different ways to mold copper. What happened later was either the result of an experiment or an accident. Someone was melting down copper, and they added a little bit of tin to the mixture. What resulted was a metal significantly stronger than both the tin and the copper on their own. It was as if the two metals formed a super metal. This metal was incredibly strong and relatively easy to make. The ratio of copper to tin was 10 to 1, and this invention kick-started an arms race, and this new metal was called bronze. This was the dawning of the Bronze Age. We discussed how copper was everywhere, and therefore anyone could create copper tools and weapons, no matter their location in the world. But tin was different. Tin was rare. The only way to create bronze was to trade with tin. And this rich commodity kick-started international trade. The very first tin mines were in modern-day Turkey, and although they were mined to be used independently, once the word got out that they could mix it with copper to make bronze, the people who worked the tin mines suddenly became filthy rich. They had the one commodity that everyone wanted, that everyone needed. This meant that they only had to focus on mining tin and nothing else. You might be wondering, why were they mining tin in the first place? And the reason is, even though it was more difficult to use, it was a metal that didn't rust. It was great for ornaments, trinkets, necklaces. But now, it was for everything. If you lived in a Bronze Age city with a tin mine, you never had to grow food. You never had to raise animals, and you never had to sew clothing or even defend yourself from marauders. All you had to do was mine the tin. 
Everything else could be purchased after selling the tin. And eventually, mining the tin itself wasn't even necessary because the owners of the tin mine just purchased slaves to work in the mines for them. This was the birth of international trade, but it was also the birth of structured and centralized governments. Because now the leader of the tin mine could get his neighbors to focus entirely on growing wheat. They didn't have to worry about protection or about clothes or even tools because all of that was provided by other cities. Soon, there were entire trade routes stretching from China all the way to Britain. Now, this wasn't a single trail. It was more like a series of trails that were segmented and individually controlled. Once the goods from the east made it to the Mediterranean Sea, they were loaded onto ships and the journey continued by water. This meant that the cities on the edge of the sea became some of the richest in the world. This is also why maritime powers like the Minoans and the Mycenaeans became so rich. Now one of these super rich Bronze Age cities on the coast of the Mediterranean was the ancient Semitic city of Ugarit. This city was founded on the coast of Syria, and it grew into a mega-fortress. This city had thousands of houses and many large structures, and a central palace with walls and gardens and ports. The city got its wealth from trade and therefore developed a writing system to keep track of every transaction of every goods that came and went through the city. In fact, these transactional records still exist, and this is how we know how many people lived there and how many commodities made their way through the ports. Eventually, this writing system turned into more than simple transactions. Soon, the entire language of the people was turned into symbols. Now, messages could be written and sent to people in other cities, asking them personal questions. But the writing back in this day was not done on paper. It was done on clay tablets. So the alphabet was designed to be made by imprinting lines into wet clay before firing the tablet up in a furnace to harden these clay tablets, making them stronger and more durable for transportation. It does not appear as though Ugarit is mentioned in the Hebrew texts. But the language of Ugarit was Semitic and very similar to ancient Hebrew. And it was because of this similarity and the large sample of Ugarit texts that biblical scholars have been able to better understand the Old Testament. It all goes back to etymology and the evolution of words. To take a quote right out of the Ancient Hebrew Research Center. The value of the Ugarit text for biblical studies lies in the fact that Mari is located in the vicinity of the homeland of the patriarchs, being about 200 miles or 320 kilometers southeast of Haran. It thus shares a common culture with the area where the patriarchs originated. Some documents detail practices, such as adoption and inheritance, similar to those found in the Genesis accounts. The tablets speak of the slaughtering of animals when covenants were made, judges similar to the judges of the Old Testament, gods that are also named in the Hebrew Bible, had personal names such as Noah, Abraham, Laban, and Jacob. A city named Nehor is mentioned, possibly named after Abraham's grandfather Nehor, as well as the city of Haran, where Abraham lived for a time. Hazor is spoken of often in the Mary text, and there is a reference to Laish or Dan as well. A unique collection of 30 texts deals with prophetic messages that were delivered to local rulers who relayed them to the king. The findings at Mari show that the patriarchal narratives accurately reflect the social economic conditions of that time and place. We discussed in our previous episodes how Heinrich Schliemann discovered Troy and the Mycenaeans and how Arthur Evans discovered the Minoan palaces at Knossos. Well, the main difference between the discovery of those sites and the discovery of Ugarit is that 
no one was actually looking for Ugarit. The previous discoveries were ancient lost civilizations that treasure hunters were seeking to uncover. But Ugarit was lost to history. No one was looking for it. It was discovered by accident. Literally by stubbing one's toe on a rock sticking out of the ground. The year was 1928, and the state of Syria was under French occupation after the end of World War I. Most of the Ottoman Empire's occupied lands were seized by the victors of the Great War. To give you a little understanding, the Ottoman Empire teamed up with the Germans and the Austrians, and when the war ended, the Allies stripped all of the colonies away from Germany, Austria, and the Ottomans. Syria was now under a French mandate. Ten years after World War I ended, a lone Syrian farmer was busy plowing his field. And while he plowed his field, he stubbed his foot or bumped his plow against a rock. The rock was in his way and he had to remove it. But the rock was not a rock. As he struggled to remove it, he realized it was an ancient brick. And it was part of a wall. The man dug away further and revealed the entrance to a tomb. And soon after, a French team of archaeologists were called in. They began removing layer after layer of earth and quickly uncovered the remains of an ancient city. This mound of earth was not a natural mound. It was the crumbled remains of an ancient city. They discovered that this city was a massive metropolis, a city filled with temples, markets, and palaces and suburbs and shops. But what was most impressive of the city was the number of stone tablets with writing on them. These tablets were going to bring the voices of the distant past back to life. Some of these tablets were so intricate that conversations between neighbors and even gossip and accusations were brought back to life after 3,000 years of being buried. Out of the tens of thousands of tablets uncovered, many of them were written in a cuneiform language that archaeologists were already familiar with. And that's Akkadian. We mentioned earlier that Akkadian is the language of the first empire in the Fertile Crescent and the world. And that's the empire of Sargon of Akkad. And because Sargon founded the very first empire, the entire region of the Fertile Crescent was familiar with the Akkadian language, and it became the language of trade. So it wasn't surprising that archaeologists found a lot of Akkadian tablets. It just proves that Ugarit was part of the lucrative bronze trade. In fact, there were many Hittite tablets uncovered, which shows the influence of the Hittites over Ugarit. This also shows that there were many diverse cultures living in the city, and they were educated. There were also Minoan tablets, Amorite tablets, Egyptian tablets, and even Mycenaean Greek tablets. As the archaeologists uncovered these tablets, they immediately bundled them up, put them on ships, and sent them off to scholars who could translate them. And this is how many of the Ugarit artifacts made their way to France and the Louvre today. Now, aside from the Akkadian and the Hittite tablets, the majority of all the tablets unearthed were using a unique Ugarit language. It was a Semitic language. And what was most interesting and intriguing about this language? was that it was not using hieroglyphs like the Egyptians. Instead, this alphabet was written kind of like the one we use today, where every character represents the sound of a consonant. You know, a phonetic alphabet. 
Only instead of having 26 characters like ours does, the Ugarit alphabet had 33 characters. And they were all for consonants, no vowels. Now to give you an example of how efficient the Ugarit text was compared to the other Semitic languages, like Akkadian specifically, which was considered the default language for trade of the day, Akkadian had over 500 characters, while Ugarit only had 33. This made Ugarit far quicker and easier to master. And there's no doubt why we find so many of these tablets in the city. Because Ugarit was so easy to learn, archaeologists found these tablets in ordinary citizen houses. And they also discovered a treasure trove in the palace archives. And in this place, they recovered tablets sent back and forth between the great kings of the region. And what this means is that every aspect of Ugarit's life, both public and private, have been captured in these tablets. And some of the best examples of these tablets bringing the past to life is the correspondence between the Canaanite cities to the south and Ugarit. Now, although Ugarit and the Canaanites were rivals in trade, they were kind of related, and they had a mutual respect. And when one called on the other for help, they could rest assured that help would come. One of these royal palace tablets recovered was a letter written from the king of Tyre and was addressed to the king of Ugarit. It seems as though one of the Ugarit fleets hit some rough weather and crashed upon the shore. Luckily, the Canaanites saw their cousin shipwrecked on the shore and came to their aid. The tablet reads as follows. This fleet of yours, which you sent to Egypt, was shipwrecked at Tyre. It was hit by a heavy storm, and the master of shipwrecks took all the cargo from their holds. However, I in turn took all their cargo, all the livestock for the provision, from the hand of the master of shipwrecks, and returned it to them. And your second fleet is in for repair at Acre. But my brother should not worry about anything. This is a cool letter to find. It brings history to life, and does so vividly and in color. It shows the personal relationship between the heads of state. It shows compassion and respect, but it also shows that the kings referred to each other as brothers, as equals. But the king of Ugarit did not look at every king as his equal, as there is a letter he sent to the pharaoh of Egypt, and you can see he views the pharaoh quite differently than the king of Tyre. And I am your servant who begs for the life to the son, the great king, my lord. Then do I not pray for the life of his soul before Baal, my lord, and length of days for my lord before Amun, and before the gods of Egypt who protect the soul of the sun, the great king, my lord? This letter to the pharaoh doesn't appear to have been answered, and it is at this time that Egypt was going through a bit of an identity crisis. We mentioned before that a pharaoh came to power who rejected all of the old gods and demanded the Egyptians worship the one true god. Well, this is the same time when Ugrit was writing to Egypt, and they never got a response. It seems as though Akhenaten wasn't just rejecting the old gods of Egypt, he was also rejecting diplomacy with the outside world. Either way, this lack of reciprocity forced Ugrit to turn to the other great powers of the region. There was a third mighty empire rising in the east, and this was the Assyrian Empire, which was forming a coalition to defeat the Hittites. This sudden lack of Egyptian protection forced the king of Ugrit to make a pledge to the Hittite Empire. It was around this time that a messenger from the capital of the Hittite Empire arrived in Ugrit with a clay tablet. The tablet was delivered to the king, who read it and then filed it away in the vault. 3,300 years later, archaeologists found this tablet, 
and translated it. Although the land of Nuhash-Shi and the land of Mukish are my enemies, you, Nikmadu, do not fear them. Have confidence in yourself. Just as formerly your ancestors were friends and not enemies of the land of Hati, now you, Nikmadu, be the enemy of my enemy and the friend of my friend. Be faithful, O Nukmadu, to the alliance of friendship with the land of Hati, and you will see then how the great king deals with the kings of Nuhash-Shi and the king of Mukish, who abandoned the alliance of friendship with the land of Hati and became the enemies of the great king, their master. If then all these kings launch an attack on your country, do not be mad, but immediately send one of your messengers, and we will save you. Despite the rising coalition against the Hittites, the king of Ugarit still chose to ally himself with them. Because the rising power of Assyria and the other city-states, they were close, but they weren't like right on his border. They were kind of a little bit up and to the right. But the Hittites, they were on their border. Like they were next-door neighbors. So even though the coalition was dangerous and nearby, if Ugarit chose to go against the Hittites, they would face the wrath of Hittite chariots almost immediately. And so, Ugarit became a vassal city to the Hittites. Almost immediately, they were attacked. The rising alliance in the east mounted their horses and rode out to Ugarit and laid siege to the suburbs, burning many buildings to the ground. But a letter carrier was sent out of the city and rode at top speed until he met the closest Hittite army. Once word made it to the Hittites that their new ally was under attack, a swift response was sent. Hittite chariots rode in from the north and the Syrian troops were destroyed. Ugarit was saved by the Hittite Empire. Now, there are tablets explaining the new relationship between the Hittite overlords and the city of Ugarit. And after the initial assault by their neighbors in the east, the Hittite era was actually a pretty peaceful and prosperous one. All it took was that one moment of truth to prove, like, hey, don't mess with us. The tablets suggest that Ugarit had a lot of control over its own city, like the king of Ugarit was an absolute monarch, but he had like no say over anything foreign. So domestic policy, yep, that's the king of Ugarit. Foreign policy, no, that is the Hittite emperor. They had to accept everything handed down to them by the Hittites, from who their allies were to who their enemies were. But one of the craziest tablets on earth in the ruins is a dispute between a king and his wife, who was married into the royal family from another city-state. Whatever she did to get the wrath of the king, it really pissed him off, and he divorced his wife and sent her back to her brother, the king of Amaru. But it didn't stop there, because the two kings kept writing letters to each other complaining about this woman, both her husband and her brother. Here is a letter written to the king of Ugarit, from the king of Amaru. And concerning the case about your wife, the woman has sinned against you in the past and has even said nasty things against me. And on your behalf, I have written to the king of Carchemish, the Hittite viceroy. I brought that woman here and I did not send her again over there, but placed her with her brothers. 
The queen was still in her brother's care in the city of Amaru when another letter was sent to Ugarit. This one was much harsher than before. The daughter of the queen, your wife, who committed such a grave sin against you. How much longer do I still have to guard that wrongdoer? Take the daughter of the queen, that wrongdoer, and do with her as you please. If you want, kill her. Throw her into the sea. Do with the daughter of the queen as you see fit. So that was a pretty nasty letter. And I can only guess what she did. I mean, it must have been something involving blasphemy or perhaps it was an affair and she humiliated the king by cheating on him. Whatever it was, it angered her husband and her brothers back home so much that they both wrote letters back and forth talking shit about her. Now, shortly after this letter was written to the king of Ugarit, an escort was sent to Amaru to fetch the queen and bring her back to Ugarit. We don't know what happened to the queen. And hey, who knows? Perhaps she escaped and lived a pleasant life in Assyria. Or perhaps she crossed south into Egypt. Or, maybe, she was brought back to Ugarit and executed by being cast into the sea. Or maybe she was locked up for the rest of her life. All we can say for sure is that she's dead now. Ugarit was a cosmopolitan hub. The modern-day New York or London or Singapore. And the letters found in the ruins show trade with every major city and even shed some light on cities that haven't been found yet. The world was alive with goods traveling back and forth through land and sea. And the king was actively writing letters to all of his counterparts in the Bronze Age. And he kind of even categorized them for... He had ways of distinguishing other kings as his equal or his superior or his inferior. He was even writing letters to the Mycenaean Greeks living on the island of Crete. Every day, a new letter arrived. And the king read it with glee and prepared a fresh tablet of clay to punch in his cuneiform message for the other kings. The kings of Greece, the kings of Anatolia, Cyprus, the Middle East, and even the pharaoh of Egypt. He was writing letters, opening trade, and creating a constant dialogue. But one day, the king of Ugarit noticed something interesting. He hadn't received letters from the kings in Greece or Sicily. There was nothing, no communication, no letters, and no boats bringing trade. It was like the distant lands just stopped sending people. The closest thing we can relate to in the modern era is as if you were calling one of your family members who moved far away or just lived, you know, far. And when you called them, the line was disconnected. You don't know what happened, just that something is off and communication is cut. So you open your email browser and you fire off a message, but that message bounces back too. Saying the email address is no longer valid. Well, that's kind of what happened with the kings of ancient Greece during the Bronze Age. They simply stopped sending letters. They stopped sending everything. But then letters ceased from other areas in the Aegean Sea, like Troy and all of western Anatolia, the southern islands of Greece, and even Crete. The communication just stopped, and it was very eerie. And the king of Ugrit knew something was wrong. And then he received a letter from the king of Cyprus, which was the closest island. 
This letter was one of panic. The letter from the king of Cyprus to the king of Ugart. May you be well. May the gods keep you in good health. Because of what you wrote to me, that they have spotted ships at sea. I mean, if they really have spotted ships at sea, be prepared for the worst. Where are your troops and your chariots? Are they not with you? If not, who will deliver you from the enemy? Surround your cities. Let the troops and chariots go inside and wait for the enemy at full strength. There were no more letters from Cyprus. And we can only imagine that the king of Cyprus and all of the people inside were killed. But what happened to the fleet of ships? Once they finished ravaging and plundering the island of Cyprus, they set sail for Ugarit. We know this. Because archaeologists found a letter written by the king of Ugarit to the king of Cyprus. And we know that this letter never made it. Behold, enemy ships are coming, and they set my ships ablaze, and they have done unseemly things to the country. My father apparently does not know that all troops of my father's overlord the Hittite king are stationed in Hatti, and that all of my ships are in Luka. They have not yet arrived, and the country lies undefended. May my father be aware of this. Now seven ships have landed, and they have done disgraceful things to us. If there are any other enemy ships, send me word. I want to be kept informed. These last tablets were found in the kiln, which means that whoever was writing it saw the fire, saw the smoke, heard the screams of the people in the streets, and frantically tried to write this letter. But the final step of creating a tablet back in the day was to bake it in a kiln, to make the tablet hard, because these tablets were found in the kiln, it's pretty obvious that whoever wrote this letter died before sending it. The entire city of Ugarit collapsed. The barbarian hordes surrounded the city, broke through the walls, and sacked everything. People living within the city grabbed whatever belongings they could find, ran into their backyards, and hastily buried them, never to return and dig them up. We mentioned before that archaeologists first uncovered a thick layer of ash. Well, that thick layer of ash was citywide. And the layer was also filled with bronze arrowheads. Thousands of them. The entire cosmopolitan city was destroyed. And all before the Hittite overlords could send reinforcements to break off the siege. And the reason the Hittites didn't come was simple. This wasn't the first place attacked by the sea people. This was happening everywhere. All of the Aegean Sea, the Mycenaean Greeks and the Hittites and even the city of Troy and as far away as the island of Sicily and even in the Middle East. The Cyclades Islands Crete and Cyprus, all of them burned to the ground. The Hittites weren't coming because the Hittites were gone. Little did the survivors of Ugarit know, they were only the latest of many great cities to fall. But the horde of sea people did not stop at Ugarit. They continued their rampage south into Amaru. And after sacking Amaru, they set up a base camp. And from there, they set their eyes on the empire of Egypt. And it is at Egypt that the unstoppable waves of sea people finally broke. And this is where we get most of our information regarding the sea people. 
For it was the Egyptians who broke their ranks. Pharaoh Ramses III knew the sea people were on their way, for they had received reports of death and destruction. But what was the biggest hint for the Pharaoh? was the fact that there were no ships, no letters, nothing. This was the Bronze Age. Trade was everyday life. Thousands of ships came and went every day, but there was nothing right now. Nothing in the sea. Egyptians stood on the beaches and looked out at an empty horizon. Everyone knew the sea people were coming. When they came, and they did come, it was precisely as Pharaoh Ramses III predicted. The first assault was over land, and the battle took place near the city of Ashkelon. Egyptian historians carved the results of this battle into stone at one of their temples, and they left hieroglyphs explaining what happened. To put it mildly, the Egyptians slaughtered the sea people. Their bows pelted arrows down on the armies, and the soldiers charged in and cut the sea people to pieces. The carnage was scattered all over the beach, and the very earth itself ran with blood. But the fighting was not over. As the boats were still on their way, and they were targeting the delta valley of the Nile, Ramses III ordered his men to crouch in the reeds and await the enemy. The sea people arrived, and their fleets landed on the shore. And as thousands of sea people jumped off the boats and charged into the delta, the Egyptian archers hiding in the reeds stood up and released their bows, sending a volley of arrows flying high into the sky that arced and then rained down on the beach of sea people that charged them. And as they fell on the beach, the Egyptian soldiers charged forward and hacked everyone on the beach, and they threw grappling hooks out into the boats in the water and pulled the ships into shore, and with their bronze swords hacked and slashed at the sea peoples. The result was a carnage that spread across the shore, all of which was depicted in the temple carvings. This battle was pivotal to Egyptian historians. This was the moment the Egyptians defeated the enemy that brought down every other great power from the Bronze Age. And to commemorate the event, Pharaoh Ramses III ordered a mural to be carved into the side of the temple, depicting the Pharaoh himself fighting off the endless hordes of sea people. The carving on the side of the temple show thousands of prisoners being escorted through the city before the Pharaoh, and piles of severed hands representing the slain bodies on the battlefield for the Pharaoh to examine. The pictures made of these battles are some of the largest pictures ever carved in Egyptian temples. This fact alone goes to show how significant this battle was considered for the Egyptians at the time. But who were the Sea People? What do we know about them? Well, to be honest, we do not know a whole lot about them. But there is some evidence that would suggest they were a coalition of starving refugees, survivors of other felled civilizations. What's important to know about the Bronze Age? The fact that every city became reliant on trade to survive. No single city of importance could survive on its own. Somewhere, somehow, the supply chain kept every city afloat. As long as the machine was running, everyone got fed. But what happens when one of these cogs breaks? What happens if there is a prolonged drought? What happens if a city collapses due to an earthquake or a volcano? Or even worse, what happens if people no longer want to trade in bronze? We don't know what caused the collapse of the Bronze Age, just that it did collapse. And when it did, 
it brought the entire world with it. Of all the great archaeological finds of every city uncovered from the Bronze Age, 150 of them were destroyed. And we're not talking about a simple fire run amok. We're talking about an entire city leveled. Pure, scorched earth. Zero survivors. Every single Greek city that existed during the Bronze Age, at least the relevant ones, has this same layer of ash. Just like the city of Troy. Just like Ugarit. Just like Knossos. And just like the capital city of the Hittites. And a hundred and fifty others. And the reason we know this was not like a super volcano that just blanketed the whole region in ash is because this layer of ash and soot ends at the perimeter of the city. The best hypothesis we heard was that this was a total collapse due to a series of unfortunate events Starting with natural disasters, which led to famine, and as soon as the food was gone, people became desperate. And it started in the outskirts, in Greece or Anatolia, or even Sicily in southern Italy. And we know this because the letters sent back and forth between the kings of Cyprus and Ugarit, may they rest in peace reference enemies coming from the west. Imagine a city that has 10,000 people, and most of the workers there are smithwrights. They make their money working bronze and then trading it for food. And then one day, a swordsmith goes into town to buy grain. And the merchant says, uh, 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 sorry, we're all out of grain. What do you mean you don't have any bread? I, I, I mean we don't have any grain, said the merchant. Can't you see? There isn't a single ship in the port. If the markets aren't restocked before all the food reserves run dry, you end up with a city of starving people. So everyone realized it was time to find food. Mobs formed in the streets, and since this was a city that made swords, everyone was heavily armed. Come on, men, said one random guy with an idea. Let's go to the village down south. They're fishermen, and we will have enough food to feed us. Now there was a tiny mob of heavily armed men and their families, all starving, marching towards the fishermen's village to the south. And when they got there, they saw there was some food, but not much. And anyone who put up resistance was quickly overpowered and killed, their food taken and eaten. But it wasn't enough. And now they had two villages worth of people starving. Only now, they weren't just heavily armed. They had fishing boats. But this wasn't an isolated event. This was happening everywhere, at the same time. There was no food, and entire villages that couldn't produce their own food were forced to migrate. And as these groups coalesced and got bigger and stronger... They overwhelmed small villages, and then small towns, and then cities. Have you ever seen a panic at a grocery store when a hurricane comes? Now imagine that, but a hundred times worse. These sea people weren't sea people. They were just people, hungry people, and desperate people. Of course, in a situation like this, you're going to get some rough and tough guys 
rising to the top, who can command men in a chaotic scene like this. But the Sea People were never an organized army, nor were they a confederacy. These were survivors. These were refugees. And as they destroyed every city and village in the Mediterranean, they made their way for the bigger cities of the Levant, such as Ugarit, for that is where the grain lie. According to the Egyptians, they knew who these people were, and they even named them in some of their writings. The tribes that made up the Sea People were the Luka, the Denyan, the Shekelesh, the Shardana, the Ekwesh, the Jekru, the Teresh, and the Peliset. Many scholars suggest that the tribe of Peliset settled in the southern lands of Canaan and became the biblical Philistines. The other tribes are almost impossible to identify, although some believe they came from Sicily and perhaps they are just tribes of Greek people. But the most important thing to realize is that in all the chaos, with the complete collapse of the Bronze Age Greek cities, a power vacuum was created. And we mentioned before that when the Greeks first migrated south, they left other tribes up in the north. These northern Greek barbarian tribes were a little rougher than their civilized counterparts. And now they saw southern Greece as ripe for the taking. The Mycenaeans were destroyed by the Sea People, and what was left were several smaller tribes of Greeks, specifically Ionians who lived in Athens. The Achaeans were remnants of the Mycenaeans, and they were in the Peloponnese, and another tribe of Greeks lived in the flat plains of Thessaly, and they were called the Aeolians. Now, out of the few Greek tribes that remained in the north, one of them took advantage of the power vacuum growing in the south. And this tribe was called the Dorians. Maybe they did so at first because they were hungry. Or maybe they just noticed there weren't any more ships traveling through the ocean. Whatever the reason, what started as a slow trickle of Dorian tribes quickly turned into a full-scale migration, and some have described it as an invasion. The Dorians stormed out of the north and quickly swooped in on the old Greeks and took their farms, and then their villages, and then their towns, eventually some of their cities. The Dorians took all of southern Greece and the Peloponnese, and even traveled further out into sea and settled on Crete. But the one and most important fact about the Dorian invasions is that they happened at the same time as the collapse of the Bronze Age. And second, none of the Dorians knew how to write. In fact, after the collapse of the Bronze Age, no one knew how to write. There were no more cities. And there was no more trade. And no more scholarly work. The whole civilization collapsed. And without civilization, and without trade, and without writing, Greece was plunged into a dark age. And this dark age was going to last several hundred years. When the Greeks finally do emerge out of the dark age, they will be the Greeks we know from ancient Greece. If you enjoyed this episode, we highly recommend you read the book 1177 BC, The Year Civilization Collapsed, by Eric H. Klein. There is way more information and events that are covered in the book, so if you have the time, check it out. 
Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the history of modern Greece. Stay safe and stay awesome. <laughs>